industry and then secular. What does this mean for the future of our industry? Because there's been a lot of talk about the future of office, retail, and industrial. And so to reach my point of view on these three areas, uh, the last six weeks have been uh, extraordinarily busy, uh, would be an understatement. I mentioned to somebody yesterday, I think I'm going to speak to 100,000 people, literally on calls like this, uh, in this period of time. And why am I doing all these calls? I'm doing all these calls, not just so I can share my ideas, I'm doing it so I can learn what's happening on the ground in places that are relevant to our industry here uh, in the United States and beyond. And that means I've been on the phone every day with my colleagues in Asia, my colleagues in Europe. I just got off another call with them moments ago and trying to find what all real estate professionals look for. Comps, comparable transactions, comparable time periods. And many people are looking at comparable time periods based upon recent American history, including the global financial crisis, including the tech bubble 9-11 period. And those are excellent comps, and you can reach a certain conclusion about where we're going to go by looking at those comps. But we're trying to look beyond that. We're trying to look at comps such as SARS in 2003 in Asia, such as what's happening with COVID-19 right now in China, such as what happened in New York post-Hurricane Sandy, and then a host of other comps uh, that might inform our opinions. So let's go right to them now, shall we? So first, to start with our macro point of view, and this is going to come as no surprise to anybody, uh, we believe that the second quarter is going to be perhaps the most challenging economic quarter in U.S. economic history, seeing GDP fall by almost 35%, seeing unemployment rise to almost 15%. But you already knew that. You already knew how challenging this quarter was going to be, and uh, because of the shutdown, and many of you, if not all of you, are speaking to me today from your homes and not your offices. But the question is, what comes next? What is going to, to take us out of this, both from a macroeconomic point of view and also from a micro point of view? What does it mean for our industry? Well, I'll just give you our point of view is that we are in the so-called V camp. Now, many of you are probably uh, going back to your Sesame Street days because you've probably heard every letter in the alphabet to describe what's coming in front of us. Some people have, are talking about a W, an L, a U. And I will tell you that our real estate letter is different than our macroeconomic letter, we actually believe that real estate will recover in a Nike pattern, which is somewhere between an L and a V. But nevertheless, why are we in this optimistic camp of we're going to bounce down very hard, but bounce back very quickly as well? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the comps that we have chosen to inform our decision. So the first set of comps I want to talk about are the 9-11 post-tech bubble and the GFC comp. And these are excellent comps, by the way, in terms of time periods you would look at to try to reach a conclusion. Uh, but I will tell you, that if you take a look at those comps, this is what they say. They say that using the office space as a proxy for the other asset classes, that the office space took about two years to go from peak to trough and rent, and then another four years to bounce back. And that means six years peak to peak. But values bounce back a little bit quicker, about four years peak to peak. But then you gotta go beyond office, because if you take a look at industrial, it never went down in value post 9-11 tech bubble. And then you got to go market by market because some markets did very poorly post tech bubble. And some of them were San Francisco, Austin, Texas, and Boston. But they did quite well post GFC because the same industry that took them down the first time will protect them today. And we certainly believe that tech heavy markets are going to perform better today as well. 
So that's those comps, but let's look beyond those comps for a moment and look at the SARS comp of 2003. Because if you take a look at that comp, you'll see that they also had an extremely sharp downturn in Asia, but then they had an extremely sharp return as well about a year later. So, so much faster than the GFC and the 9-11 uh, tech bubble comp. But then you look at what's, on, what's happening on the ground in China as we speak. And now, if we had had this call in mid-February, February 19th, I would tell you that China, from an economic perspective, was largely shut down. Most industries were shut down. Most shopping centers were closed, and almost every Starbucks in the country was closed. Today, almost 95% of all Starbucks are open. Almost 95% of shopping centers are open, and industry is similarly open at a similar clip. But if you take a look at foot traffic, some cities in China have foot traffic today that is in excess of the foot traffic they had at the same time uh, a year ago. Now, not everything's bouncing back. With respect to major purchases for things like automobiles and single family homes, those are still way down. Intercity travel, that's still way down. But you know what's getting back closer to normal? Things that get right to the heart of our industry. Because I was on the phone with my colleagues in Singapore on Monday, and they told me that the office tours, meaning tours of occupiers just like yourselves to see new office space, were at about 75% of peak levels. So that's an encouraging fact. And a lot of you are saying, well, China and the US aren't the same. They have a different system of government. Um, they um, have the ability to enforce laws differently than us, different cultural factors. Well, all that's true, but you have to remember, there's no such thing as a perfect comp in anything. But nevertheless, it is a comp that we look at to say what might be possible here if we follow a, a regimented approach to reopening the office. And what, are the, what is that approach that they're following in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Taipei, in Seoul, in Tokyo? Well, they sum it up in the three T's. And the three T's are technology, tracking, and testing. The more of those three, three things we have, the faster we're gonna get out of this. And I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, I don't want to be tracked by the government. Well, you know who doesn't want to be tracked by the government? This guy doesn't want to be tracked by the government. But you know what? I'm prepared to do it if that gets me back into the office, back into the real world sooner. And I think it's one of those sacrifices that we really need to think hard about making uh, in the short term to try to get our economy and uh, folks back on their feet uh, sooner. So let's now go uh, micro for a second. Because I mentioned it from a macro perspective, we're in the V camp with a sharp downturn followed by a sharp recovery in the third and fourth quarter of this year, more than double digit growth, about 6% next year. But from a micro perspective, what's gonna to happen to real estate? Well, real estate, we have taken what we call a one, two, three approach. One, which asset types are gonna come back in year one, and that's gonna be multifamily and industrial. Two, which asset class is gonna come back in year two, and that's office. And three, which asset classes are going to come back in year three, and that's retail and hotels. And that probably is no surprise to anybody there. And you should just know by way of background that CBRE came out with a report about 10 days ago showing in the multifamily space that we believe that vacancy, while it's going to rise in 2020, is going to begin to decline by the fourth quarter. And we believe rents are going to begin to rise in the first quarter of 2021. And industrial is just behind that. Now, industrial, while it has been the best, the best, the most protected asset class from all these mega trends over the last 10 years is not immune to this crisis. Nobody's immune to this crisis. 
and we have seen some measure of underperformance in industrial rent collections that we expected. Just got off the phone with my uh, global head of property management, and we found that in our properties that we manage, we were at about 77% collections, which was a fair bit lower than I thought we were going to be. But nevertheless, multifamily and office may have outperformed, and they are at around 90% collections. Unfortunately, retail has materially underperformed uh, at 20 to 40% collections, depending upon which retailer, uh, re retail format you're talking about. And unfortunately, it may have accelerated many of the trends that were uh, negative on the space before, including secondary market malls and power centers. But unfortunately, there will be additional casualties this time, as the National Restaurant Association suggested in a call last week that up to 14% of all restaurants will never reopen. So the challenge in retail isn't just today, it's what's going to be happening over the next several years. But while on calls like this, I'm always the guy that's talking about what's going to happen in one year, two years, five years, 10 years. For a moment, I'm going to talk about the next 45 days, because I believe the next 45 days are the most important 45 days that our industry has ever faced. And that is why my email, which is right next to me on my screen, looks like a slot machine because I watch rent collections. I watch deals getting done every moment of every day because it's really important. And why is it really important? It's really important for this thing that we call price discovery. And what is price discovery? What's the asset worth? What is market rent? And these things are unclear at this moment unless and until we hit the proverbial bottom. And we're not sure you're gonna hit proverbial bottom in terms of rent collections until May, possibly June, which is a bad thing hitting bottom. But the good news about hitting bottom is that you now have the ability to objectively underwrite rents, occupancies, and then by extension, capital markets values of your building, which are nearly impossible to calculate if you don't know what rent roll you're buying. In fact, that's a comment that a landlord gave to me the other day. I'd like to buy something, but I don't know the rent roll I'm buying. By May or June, you'll know the rent roll you're buying. Now, there are interim steps that people are taking to try to get past this period, both from a capital markets perspective and then from an occupancy perspective. From a capital markets perspective, many would-be sellers are creating cash flow escrow accounts for up to two years of cash flow to try to have a burn down of any rents that are not collected over the next six months to two, two year period, which would then be given to the buyer. The other thing that's being happened on occupier side, and this is applies to all of you on this call, is we are seeing people that are negotiating longer term commitments enter into rent reset provisions where some landlords are granting occupiers the ability to mark to market their rents two years out from now to be able to get them through this two year period of uncertainty and recalculate top line rent. So there's, there are ways to bridge this, call it two year gap of, of massive uncertainty, imperfect, but not bad interim solutions. So what's happening right now between landlords and tenants? Well, I will tell you just a philosophical uh, positive thing, if there's good news in this whole uh, situation, is that I have never seen our industry, which is landlords, tenants, lenders, and others, really try to work together today better than I've ever seen them do before, uh, in part because, and I say this matter of fact, there are no obvious villains here. If you looked at the global financial crisis, you could blame Wall Street. If you took a look at the tech bubble, you, you blame the big tech companies. There's no obvious villains here. 
And that is why we're seeing great collaboration, at least the best collaboration I've seen between the major players in our industry. It is also why we are seeing so much federal stimulus dollars being pumped into the economy in such force and so quickly because they don't see the same moral hazard issue which you might have seen back in the GFC to save bad banks who were bad actors. There are no bad actors here, which is another reason why we have optimism that we're going to bounce back more quickly. This is a massive amount of federal stimulus. One more macro comment, and then I'm going to get right back to real estate. There are those that disagree with us, and I have great respect uh, for a lot of folks that are predicting the future in the U.S. economy. And one of them is a, a terrific economist. His name is Mark Zandi. He's the head economist at Moody's, and he believes that we're going to enter into a W scenario, which means that we're going to have a double dip scenario where in the fall, the disease is going to rear its ugly head, and we're going to have to go back into shutdown mode, uh, much like we're in right now. And it's possible. I note I'm looking on my iPad to my left, and 10 minutes ago, I saw that China just shut down another city of 10 million people, about the same size as Chicago, because they had a rise in the number of infections. And that's probably going to happen open, close, uh, by, on a regional and a sub-market basis until we get to a TTT approach. And again, this is tracking, testing, and technology to allow you to do that. Testing is the key from our point of view, because once you have appropriate testing, you can then segregate those people who have been impacted from those who have not, and also protect those who are most vulnerable in a much more targeted fashion. And that is why we're not suggesting there's not going to be a flare-up in the fall. There very well might be. And it's, in fact, most experts believe there will be. But we believe that we'll be able to protect the economy better then than we can today from this complete shutdown scenario that we have at the moment. So let me make a secular comment now for a moment, if I can, because I've been asked a lot about the future the future of office, the future of retail, future of industrial. But let's start with retail because that's the one area that I think uh, gives people most uh, concern, certainly in the next couple of years, uh, because of the shutdown of uh, many restaurants that won't reopen and because of the social distancing measures that are going to be in force until this is cured, until there's an actual vaccine. That could be 12 months from now, it could be 18 months from now. So there's going to be not only need to have tremendous government support today for retail, through SBA lending and other support of governments of the key lenders in the industry, uh, but also go ongoing because many of these tenants are not going to be able to have full occupancy for 12 to 18 months. You may see checkerboard seating uh, in movie theaters. You may see restaurants have diminished occupancy. And you may see some people do what uh, I'll give you a public company comp uh, did. Uh, there's a hospitality company in uh, Philadelphia called Hersha Hospitality Trust, and this is public information, that cut a deal with their lenders to give them not only about $75 million of additional cash, but to give them covenant relief through May of 2021. What they essentially did is they mothballed their assets from a capital markets perspective for over a year. And that's what some of the most troubled assets may have to do. And I was on the phone last week with the owner of one of the largest concert halls in the Maryland area. They're considering something similar. But now I'll give you one piece of good news about retail. Retail is always getting thrown under the bus, so I got to show it a little love here. And the love comes from Hong Kong because this is what's happening in Hong Kong right now. My good friend and colleague, Henry Chin, who lives in Hong Kong, is telling me that there's a new phenomenon happening there, and it's called revenge retail. And what is revenge retail? 
Revenge retail is because he's walking down the street and seeing people line up not only to buy luxury goods from luxury goods stores, but lining up to go into restaurants because people quite candidly are sick and tired of being at home and they want to go out and spend some money. You know who feels that way? This guy feels that way, but not just this guy as an individual, this guy who follows the economy because there's a term called pent up demand. And don't underestimate the amount of pent up demand there is among the good people on this call and elsewhere to go into restaurants, to go back to concerts, to go back to the office, which is the next asset class I'm going to talk about because there's been a lot of talk about, oh, we don't need the office anymore. We need less of it. So let's talk about that, shall we? Because what we're going to see over the next 12 to 18 months is less physical occupancy of the office, but you will, and some diminution of the legal occupancy, less tenants. There will be some vacancy and there's certainly going to be a rise in sublet space. We're seeing that everywhere, including in some of the tightest office markets in the United States like San Francisco. But what does that mean long-term? Well, there have been some prominent CEOs who've gotten on TV and said, well, we don't need as much office space in the future. Uh, my answer is, well, maybe you're not so fast because notwithstanding the fact that there has been a material rise in what we call the fluid workplace, and that's distinct from the agile workplace. The agile workplace is what dis defines what's inside of the four walls of your office, like um, activity-based learning, uh, activity-based working, which is something we talk about a lot. But fluid describes how you work anywhere. It could be in the workplace, it could be at your home, like many of you are right now. It could be at a Starbucks, it could be in the back of a self-driving car. Well, we knew that was coming anyways. In fact, CBRE wrote a report called The Age of Responsive Real Estate, the 2030 report, which we, published about six weeks ago. And what that report showed was that the fluid worker workplace was going to increase. So we knew that. But what we also show in our report and other reports that we have done is that the workplace, the physical four-walled workplace is indispensable. And why is that? Because people don't go to the office because they, quote, need to go to the office, as most of us see on this Zoom call right now. They go there because they want to go to the office. And what does want mean? Well, every survey that we've done showed that people go to the office because they are happier, they are more productive, and you can attract and retain talent. That is the holy grail, folks. It was the holy grail six weeks ago, and it's going to be the holy grail two years from now again. And people are going to say, geez, do I want to have this type of workforce? You do. And it's not just those factors. If you want to create a, a great culture, a culture of trust, very hard to do so remotely, much easier to do so in the physical workplace. Now, are you gonna see some changes to the office? Well, as I mentioned in the next 12 to 18 months, you're gonna see a lot of changes in the short term as it relates to enhanced wellness techniques. And enhanced wellness techniques are everything that you know about from hand sanitizers, and there may be a period of time when wearing masks or gloves, and there may be additional social separation in the building for things like the number of people that can go into an elevator cab. Uh, but then you will see some long-term things too. And what is my best comp for that? Hurricane Sandy in New York City, and tragically 9-11. And why do those inform me? They inform me for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you take a look at what happened post-Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and Hurricane Sandy, for those of you who aren't familiar with that comp, is when a hurricane hit lower Manhattan and caused billions of dollars of infrastructure damage to office and other types of buildings. What happened? 
The codes were changed for building buildings in floodplains to put the critical infrastructure above the 100-year floodplain line. Buildings became more resilient. Now, it's hard to talk about the 9-11 comp, but I think it's relevant here because it will inform us of what's going to happen here now as well. What happened post 9-11? Well, first of all, there was a tremendous uh, fear factor of going back into major cities like New York, like DC, and even Chicago, some people had a fear factor. And that showed up not just not wanting to go back to these major cities, but also there was a period of time in New York City where the rents that were being charged or being offered at lower floors were higher than the rents offered for upper floors because people had this fear factor. But what changed? Security in buildings changed. People got more secure going back into the big cities and New York and Chicago and DC and San Francisco have all thrived because people are now confident to go back there from a security standpoint. And they're confident to go there because they have all these other attributes from the best infrastructure, from the best amount of human capital, from the best amount of cash capital that is irreplaceable. And that is going to be the case here as well. So I think people will go back into the cities. They're going to go back into dense environments. They're going to go back into office buildings. But we are going to see some longer term changes too, structurally to some of these places, just like we saw post Hurricane Sandy. And what's one of those areas we're going to see structural changes? We're going to see that in the form of upgraded HVAC systems. And HVAC systems, I will tell you, until three weeks ago, I was not an expert, and I'm still not an expert, by the way, but I know more about HVAC today than I ever did before. And so I learned uh, about a system called hydronic heating and ventilation from a terrific developer in California called McCarthy Cook. And what hydronic heating and ventilation is, is basically they pump water into pipes in your floors and into your walls rather than pumping forced air into your building because that is cleaner, obviously no forced air, but it's also more efficient. Now, why don't more people do hydronic? Because it's more expensive to install, but over the long term, I guarantee you, you're gonna see more of that. But what do you do for an existing building that has forced air? Well, you're hearing about new systems there as well where people are going to put in infrared systems that literally zap the air as it comes out of your your HVAC system to kill whichever bacteria is in it. These are some of the physical changes that are going to happen to your building before you even see the pendulum swing in terms of the amount of densification for the average employee in the building, meaning you might see a spread of the number of, uh, of square footage for the average employee in the building, which is going to counteract the increase in the use of the fluid workplace. Last asset type I'm gonna mention is gonna be industrial. And industrial has been the net winner in the uh, megatrend uh, changes that we've seen over the last 20 years, obviously led by e-commerce. And that is clearly going to continue. Because if there was one thing that we failed on, we failed on 100 things during this terrible crisis. But if I were to point to one thing from a business standpoint that we failed is we failed the resiliency test. Our businesses were too efficient and they didn't have the ability to react to a crisis because everything that we wanted to get delivered was just in time. Everything was down to the last moment of delivery. And when we had a crisis, it disrupted the flow of goods from China and not just on our iPhones, also on things like pharmaceuticals, also things like masks and gloves that we're seeing right now. But even on a very local level, my wife and I have been ordering home delivery of food now for six weeks from this thing called Peapod service. Every one of those deliveries have come 50% or less filled. 
Why? Not enough food, not enough stuff like paper towels to go around. What's going to happen is that resiliency thing is now going to be a requirement of major companies that have the ability to expand their storage capacity of whatever goods that they bring to the market. It's going to bring more manufacturing back to the United States, which is a trend I've talked about before. And I probably talked about it six weeks ago when I was with you folks in Chicago. And it's also going to lead to a rise in certain specialty types of industrial, notably cold storage, to be able to more efficiently uh, bring goods uh, to you in the local market. So let me sum up my comments like this, and then I'll take whatever questions you have. I am a macro optimist in terms of the speed by which the macro economy will come back. Now, many practitioners have a different opinion on that. And I spoke to my dear friend and colleague, Richard Barkham, about that phenomena. He said, we always see this, where the, the economists are more op optimistic than the practitioners because we have the benefit of hindsight and being a little bit removed from it. And also because we can see the massive mathematical power of this stimulus where it's hard to touch and feel uh, at the field level. So we are an optimist on the economy. On the real estate, we believe that it's going to come back, but it's going to go in this one, two, three pattern, where in year one, you're going to see multifamily and industrial come back. Year two, it's going to be office. Year three, it's going to be retail and hotels. You will see some initial spark in both retail and hotels because of this pent-up demand, but it's going to take longer for them to get back to where they were six weeks ago. And with that, I want to say one more time, my dad was a huge fan of Chicago. I'm a huge fan of Chicago, and Chicago will come back just fine. And with that, I'm delighted to take any questions you might have. Spencer, thank you so much. I feel like uh, we all just drank from a, a big fire hose. So the information you've shared uh, today is, is, has been great. And uh, if any of the participants do have a question, you're going to need to take yourself off of mute, uh, ask your question, then, and then we'd ask you to put yourself back on mute. Uh, to get started, though, uh, you mentioned uh, 45 days before we kind of hit the bottom and uh, you know start moving back up. What 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 will you what what do you see or what's going to be the index at that period of time, whether it's 45 days or 50 days, that you're you're looking for to see that we've hit that. Well, well, that's a terrific question, Patrick. And so in addition to the fact that we manage almost 4 billion square feet of uh, commercial real estate and we track the collections at much of that, which is the best indicator of when rents start to stabilize, uh, we also are, are coming up with about 20 other metrics that show when are things getting back to normal. And so we have within our company what's known as the financial consulting group, which not only tracks um, valuations, BOVs, broker opinions of value for uh, valuing the purchase of building. We also do in the financial consulting group uh, uh, an analytics on new leases. And so we know when both landlords and tenants are thinking about coming back into the market based upon that activity. So that's a tremendous leading indicator. And then there are, of course, other indicators that we have here at CBRE, including we track the number of new deals launched. So just to give you a number, uh, we typically launch 100 deals a week, approximately in the United States. We're down to about 30 now. Um, but we, once we start to see that number tick up again, we also track the number of confidentiality agreements signed 
uh, for people that want to bid on deals. And we typically have about 4,000 a week. Uh, now that's down to probably about 1,200. Once we see that number tick up again, again, leading indicators of when we're coming back, that combined with a stabilization of the rent rolls uh, as measured by collections. Hi, Bob. Oh. Go ahead, Blair. That okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, <clears throat> great stuff. I, uh, I, I love the data. Um, one, one of the things that I can't help but being struck by with all of this and going back to a couple of your uh, comps that you've used, you know, 9-11 uh, kind of posed a, a sense of an existential threat for a relatively short period of time in how consumers perceive cities. Milwaukee didn't feel very fearful that, uh, that we were going to get uh, any type of terrorist activity. Um, and you look at the other ones, in each of those cases, I struggle to identify the types of influences on changes in consumer demand and consumer preferences like I anticipate that we'll see in, uh, in a post-COVID world. Um, more, well more than half of the millennial generation, which in many respects powered multifamily renaissance in our cities, are now 28 and older. And so we find ourselves in a moment where a huge proportion of our city population will now use COVID to weigh their options going forward. And my personal belief is that on a micro level, we will see changes in how consumers value urban amenities and then how conversely they value uh, the types of amenities that come with the arc of their life changing towards child rearing and doing all of those things. So how do you factor in the impact of potential consumer preference changes in this as opposed to approaching it from the supply side? Well, it's excellent question. And, and um, there are no perfect comps. And uh, we, we use these comps to try to inform us, uh, not to, uh, uh, to give us the answers. Uh, but yes, the change in consumer behavior is going to be significant and long lasting. And the question of, uh, about those consumer behaviors include not only their preferences for the type of living arrangements they have, but where they're going to live. Um, and as I noted in the 9-11 comp, which I mentioned, many people didn't want to live in the big cities anymore uh, because of the fear factor of terrorism. And I would say there's a similar fear factor here, not the same, but similar as it relates to pandemic risk. Uh, I think that once you have enough of the wellness um, devices into not only buildings, but the, but the area where it's going to be most challenging in the short term for sure, and we'll see in the long term, is in mass transit. What do you do on a subway train? What do you do on an airplane? And so those are the things that in the short term are going to hurt the cities, at least in the near term, as people try to get into work confidently, are more people going to drive to work in the suburbs than commute into the city on a subway train on a percentage basis in the short term? You probably will because they're going to have more what I would call wellness security in the short term. But I think over the long term, the long term trends will hold as it relates to the, and this is not to knock suburbs, but the superiority of the city for most office and business uses because of all these virtuous cycles of not just infrastructure, but money and, uh, and talent. And I think that's irreplaceable. But I do believe that this shock will be much longer lasting from a psychological standpoint in many ways than will 9-11 and may have more impact on our patterns for where we live and our preferences for certain things. But I think that the world three years from now, looking back on today, will look much more similar than it did two months ago than it will to some scenario where the cities somehow are on a permanently negative trajectory. Next question, please. 
Spencer, any thoughts on uh, the uh, issue with limiting people in elevators and the, the towers? Sure. So um, that's already been discussed in, um, in Singapore. So one of the reasons why I'm spending so much time on Zoom calls all over the world is I want to learn exactly what's happening around the world. And so Singapore is already working in things like putting tape on the floor of elevators uh, and other forms of limiting the number of people coming into buildings. And you're going to see that for a while. Well, what do you do with a building that already had slow elevators? Well, it's an issue. It's going to limit the number of people that can go into that uh, building uh, in the near term. Uh, so that's why the next 12 to 18 months uh, are going to be, uh, you'll see office occupancy well below uh, its uh, peak levels, um, which will match to some degree what you're going to see in restaurants. Now, you're going to see that from a wellness safety perspective, but I stand behind what I said before about this pent-up demand. A lot of you folks don't feel that right now because you know the fear factor is real. I feel it myself, but I think the pent-up demand to go back into restaurants, to go back into the office is much stronger than uh, we may feel in the pit, pit of our stomachs right now. That um, what, The only thing holding people back going to these places uh, is going to be um, local regulations uh, and landlords otherwise putting wellness services in their buildings that can uh, uh, keep people safe. Uh, not just keep them safe, but give them the confidence that they're safe. And that's why you're going to see much more visible wellness things than you might have seen before, even if some of them had previously existed, such as janitorial services. You're going to see much more visible services like that, uh, maybe uniform changes, whatever, that make people confident. Because we, we're going to have not just a healthcare crisis, we have a tremendous crisis of confidence. Next question, please. Do you believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe that social distancing measures will be become uh, routinized in the bar, restaurant, uh, the food, whole F and B space, as well as an entertainment space? Um, notwithstanding the tremendous risk factor, fear factor, and otherwise, we're going to have in the next 12, 18 months. I, I'm going to just give you an unequivocal no. Will not. Um, I'm going back to a Ravens game before you guys get to a Bears game, uh, as soon as possible. Um, I will go to a concert tomorrow if I was allowed to go. Now, I may be in the minority in terms of my zeal to go back to these places, but I'm certainly not in a small minority uh, yet. And people will go back to them. They will go back to them with confidence uh, because I think that what you saw in Asia, why did Asia deal with this crisis so much better than we did, at least in, in, uh, at the moment? Because they had experience with it. They were prepared. You saw in Taipei and Taiwan where people were uh, they, they had almost no spread or very little spread because they had dealt with H1N1. They dealt with SARS. They, they dealt with the swine flu and all these other things. Once we have experience with this, we're going to be better off. We're going to have more confidence. So you have not seen any of that social distancing stuff have uh, uh, durability in Asia. You're not going to see it here either after we get through this period. Spencer? Spencer, yes. one of the uh, participants has asked about uh, what do you see the uh, impact to healthcare and real estate? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and then, Diana, I'll take your question next. I saw you raise your hand there. Um, so, interesting question, which uh, I have a counterintuitive short term answer. So, my counterintuitive short term answer is I, I've been in this business for 25 years, and I did a lot of work in the medical office space, among other things. And you would think that medical office would be like the best place to be right now from an investment standpoint. It has proven to be quite the opposite because most small medical providers, uh, my wife owns a physical therapy shop that she had to shut down. Um, my, my buddy of mine is an orthopedic surgeon. He can't do surgery. Um, so these medical office buildings that had all of this 
um, you know, th- things that you would consider to be essential uh, weren't deemed essential today. And so they, they've actually been hurt from a um, short-term perspective uh, in terms of their ability to operate, but they'll, they'll open up again soon, but not at a full level. I mean, my wife's going to have to have a, all these advanced wellness protocols in her medical office building. But what do I see over the long term? Well, first of all, from a preparation for the next disaster scenario, you're going to have plans in place that, God forbid, we have another pandemic like this. We're going to be able to flip a switch and say, we now have an extra 10 million hospital beds and other things ready to go. And that's going to be things like dormitories at universities and other places that are just ready to go. Um, So that's from a redundancy standpoint, there'll be all this backup stuff. But from a direct provision of medical care standpoint, um, there's already been an advancement in telemedicine and things like x-rays. You're going to see a significant advancement in telemedicine because what you're seeing now, some of the uh, horrible consequences of this aren't just the people that are uh, tragically getting sick or dying from COVID-19. One of the consequences is that people aren't going to the doctors with their children to get vaccinated right now. And there's a fear factor that you might see a breakout of something like the measles. And that's because people are afraid to go into the doctor's office for that, uh, let alone people who are most vulnerable, elderly folks disproportionately, who are afraid to go in uh, for other types of treatment for diabetes or heart disease or other things. So telemedicine is one of the big things. Uh, Medical office buildings are going to get better, cleaner, so that this doesn't happen to them again much similar, not dissimilar to how office buildings are going to get cleaner from a wellness standpoint as well. So I, I would say there are some countervailing forces in telemedicine, which are going to push, push back on space demand, but I see nothing but more space demand, albeit cleaner, uh, because of an aging demographic and the, uh, the need for, uh, for healthcare services. So I'm very bullish on the medical office space, but you didn't ask me the senior housing question, which, which you may have thought of, because a lot of people are asking me that question too, which in the short term, uh, they're in a very bad place uh, because uh, nobody can go into these places as new residents because they can't tour. Uh, they obviously have this uh, horribly tragic uh, mortality rate that's because of the disease, uh, which is just, I mean, the news couldn't be worse. But I believe, you know, tragically, once we get through this period, this too will pass and the need for senior housing two years from now uh, will begin to rise again. The thing that's going to hit senior housing in the short term isn't just this terrible disease. Uh, It's also because the single biggest driver of people in the senior housing, other than aging, is the value of their single family home improving. And so we're likely to see a drop in the value of single family homes over the next couple of years, uh, which is going to further diminish the demand for more senior housing. There's going to be more of what people call aging in place in their existing residences. So next question, and then I'm going to go to Diana, who was so patiently waiting. So Diana, please ask your question. Sure. When you were with us in January, um, the question was brought up about the uh, issue in China. And at that point, the economic thought process was that there was just a short-term dislocation of funds. It was not expected to be a major global pandemic. Obviously, things shifted. um, And the spread was what shifted. Um, Is there anything in the forecast of the future that could cause your current outlook to shift as massively as it has in the last three months? Well, um, thank you for that question, Diana. And uh, let me just go on record saying that my forecast in January was, uh, it was wrong. And But you were working with the information that you had. So well, is there... <laughs> But no, the uh, what what could change my forecast positively or negatively, right? Putting aside another 
what they call these a black swan event, events you cannot see coming. And of course, we didn't see it coming, even though we should have. Um, what, what, what would shift it is a uh, really a delay in the um, vaccination process, the curing of the disease. I would say that's the most likely scenario that just drags this thing on much longer than we and others anticipate, uh, which would put us into a U or an L scenario. And by the way, I was on the phone last week with a, a head of a big German bank, and they believe in a U scenario. There are people that with L scenarios. We're kind of factoring that in. So what would shift me from a V to a W, the double dip, or the um, U or the L uh, is a um, making no progress on testing and or uh, curing the disease, uh, which make us more pessimistic. What would make me more optimistic is if we accelerate those things. So really, uh, I don't claim to be, uh, I'm not a medical expert, but that is probably the key factor on both a positive optimism or a negative pessimism front. We have uh, more chat questions. So uh, here's, here's two that you can tackle. One is uh, your opinion on testing and its impact on opening the uh, economy and then uh, the potential impact of elective business travel. Okay. Speak on those two items. Sure. I'm going to take the second one first because that's, um, that's an easier one, I suppose. Um, elective business travel is going to be way down for years. And when I say years, I don't mean 10 years, I mean two years, uh, because uh, I am probably one of the most active speakers on the conference circuit. I've been very fortunate to speak at tons of Cornet events, including your national event now twice. Uh, I'm proud to say that I opened up for Spike Lee this year. Well, sort of, he was the speaker after me. I didn't really open for him, but it sounds cooler when I say it that way. Um, but I have no physical travel on my schedule <laughs> for the indefinite future because all my conferences have been canceled and they take a while to ramp up again. Do I believe I'm going to start going back to conferences starting next year? Do I believe I'm going to start going back to business meetings next year? Sure, I do. But um, I just did a, um, a pitch just prior to this in Washington, D.C. And what I said to them was they have a distinct competitive advantage at the moment because of their rail. Uh, their connectivity to New York City, uh, their connectivity to Boston via rail. Because I think even though rail is going to be down, it's not going to be down as much as an airplane because people have a much more confident ability to ride rail. Now, I know there's rail between Milwaukee and Chicago. I've taken that too. It's not a bad train and you need more of that, more regional strain. So I think you're going to see people that have strong regional ties are going to do better in the short term uh, because of that from a travel standpoint, because uh, elective business travel is going to be down for, for a couple of years. Um, as it relates to the testing question, um, this is not a joke. This is actually the truth of what I actually think. Remember I mentioned the three T's, the three T's of technology, testing, and tracking. Well, if the prospect of the government tracking you doesn't scare you, I'll tell you who it scares. It scares this guy. I don't want to be tracked by the government at all, ever, with the exception of today. And why is that? Because if that is what it takes for me to get out of my house sooner, I'm willing to sacrifice some of my core values for the greater good. And that is the one area where we got to suck it up and just do it. Because if we don't, we're going to be stuck in our houses longer. So here's something that's not a joke, but I'm just going to say it because the movie was filmed in your market. Do you guys ever see the movie Batman with, when he fights the Joker? And there's a scene at the end of that movie where they had to put in a special sonar tracking device to catch the Joker before he killed thousands of people. And Morgan Freeman walks in and says, you can't do this. This is wrong. But even Morgan Freeman did it for about you know, a week until they caught the Joker. And then what happened? 
They destroyed the system at the end of the movie. That's exactly what we need here. And that movie was filmed in Chicago. So Batman to the rescue. Next question, please. I can't top Batman, but next question anyways. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. There's a question on social distancing in the office and scenarios for bringing people in this uh, um, limits on you know the number of people who can fit. Do you see short term or long term a requirement for additional space? I think long term, I see requirement for additional square footage for each employee in the office. So I'm I'm hedging that because I do see a modest rise uh, in the long term in the fluid workplace where more people work from home than in the office. Though I don't see that as a massive permanent shift. I do see an increase of it, but I don't see it taking 20% of the people out of the workplace. I think it's going to be more like 5% because I think more people are going to want to go back into the office than not. It is a superior place to work. But yes, the densification pendulum is going to shift back and you're likely to see more square footage rather than less. But what you're also going to see, we haven't discussed this on this call, but I'll just mention it now. You know, co-working is going through a tough go of it right now and it's going to probably get worse before it gets better over the next few months as they've lost all their tenants. Some of the big co-working operators have capital markets issues. But the reality is I think co-working and flex space is going to be even more important in the future than it is today. Now you might see changes in configuration of the space where you have less of the bench style seating or open office and more demise space where large uh, corporate users can just define who's in their space and control that space. But nevertheless, I think flex space, even though it's going to have a real tough go of it uh, for the next six months to a year, will have a bright future as well uh, because of this. So even though that's going to be a hole in the donut for the short term, as some of these uh, operators uh, go out or um, have trouble, long term, that's going to be part of the solution. More square footage for the average person is part of the solution. But the countervailing force is just how big is this fluid workplace, people working from home on a permanent basis uh, going to be. Next question, please. Along those lines of working from home, uh, there are some very large cities, Chicago, Tokyo, New York, um, where where uh, residents have trouble just getting out of their house, right, and, and maintaining social distancing. Uh, but there are other locations that are more rural um, that uh, you know, offer that opportunity. Are those uh, are those cities? Do they offer a stronger geographic flexibility? Well, what we what we think we're going to see is we're going to see more occupiers have their main headquarters in cities. CBD, just like a lot of large occupiers, move to the Fulton Market in Chicago, but having a satellite office in the suburbs if people want to have flex work capability that way. I see more of that. So I see additional space being added um, in places like that. So if people want that flex option of not having to commute in, but no, I think the death of the city is, is not going to happen. I think there's too many advantages. And I think once these wellness solutions come into play, uh, people are going to get very comfortable with them. And once again, using a terrible comp post 9-11, people have a terrible uh, terrorism fear factor. I think they'll overcome the wellness fear factors. We'll go back to the cities, but there will be a rise in some demand for suburban locations for offices. I still believe most strongly in the so-called urban suburban locations, those that have live, work, play rather than pure suburban. But nevertheless, I do believe it has some modest shift of more office space there. Uh, but I think the, uh, the future of the cities uh, is bright uh, and 
come 18 months from now, once we're through this crisis, um, it's going to be just as bright as it was a couple of months ago. Another question from the audience. What's your feeling on the effect of the current plummeting of oil prices on the economy? Well, it's uh, counterintuitive because normally when people talk about plummeting oil prices, they talk about how everybody is saving money at the pump as a kind of a backdoor stimulus uh, to the economy. The reality is very few of us are, us are driving. I have a hybrid electric car, which is sort of a toy because it only goes 15 miles on a charge and then you got to fill it up. Guess who hasn't filled up the car in two months? Me, because that's the, all the driving I'm doing. So it's not giving us the stimulus and the real risk factor uh, short term uh, from the oil crisis is that it will lead to a contagion in the financial markets because of all of the bonds uh, that are held by uh, banks and others that uh, finance these uh, oil companies, many of them that without significant government support are likely to go bankrupt. Uh, it's also going to impact certain markets like Houston, like Calgary, like Edmonton uh, significantly. It's already impacting those markets. So from a commercial real estate market, it's going to cause great softness in, in those centers. From a financial center, it's the contagion risk uh, to the banks. Um, that's where it is, but I think long-term, let me restate that. In the, in the near term, uh, if the price of oil is called 20 bucks a barrel today, it'll be closer to 55, 60 bucks a barrel in about a year from now. And I'm not an oil trader. That's not telling you to go buy oil companies, but I'm saying that the, the demand will come back more quickly from cars, airplanes, and manufacturing uses. You mentioned earlier property management companies uh, and building managers will have to increase services for cleaning and you know janitorial and things like that. Um, do you do you see anything radical or unusual in what is being done in, in some other markets that you've observed, or do well, you I think th it's just a well? I think the new increased norm. in specs. Sure. So one of the things people are talking about is temperature checks, uh, and the second thing is masks. Okay, and so. Temperature checks sound like a good idea, right? Well, once you get into the specifics of a temperature check, it gets really complicated. First of all, who's going to administer that check? Second of all, what do you do if you find somebody who has an elevated temperature? Third, what about HIPAA laws, healthcare laws that you can't report somebody's healthcare, right? So it, it brings up a whole host of issues, but nevertheless, in some of these other countries, they've been able to overcome it and they are, are having these temperature checks. Uh, the other thing that may sound unusual to everybody on this call, but not as unusual today as it did six weeks ago, is I would be surprised if all of us aren't wearing masks in public all the time for about the next year. That's unusual. And by the way, so what? Um, you know, they're, they're getting more stylish. But the bottom line is, if that's my price of going outdoors is wearing a mask and some gloves, bring it on. Hey, Spencer, this is uh, Rick. Um, I was on a call yesterday with some folks from Singapore, and they showed their uh, cell phone with a QR code on there, which is their health status. I know you've been talking to those folks. Is something like that, what you're talking about, losing some of our privacy, but also maybe a way to get back to work faster? And how does that help a building owner, and certainly corporate, the rest of us in corporate you know, real estate have the same concern? Legally, what is the reasonable protections we need to provide our employees, maybe similar to the ADA reasonable accommodations uh, to avoid the legal concerns? Well, the, le the legal concerns are, are really, uh, there are so many layers to this, and I'm not going to give you a, a, a legal opinion. I'll tell you some of the things that have been discussed. 
Um, one of them, uh, I mentioned the HIPAA thing with a temperature check, uh, but also OSHA wanted to come in and put new regs on people of uh, how you can work in the workplace. Now, there was a real pushback by that uh, from Republicans against that. But, you know, these are the things that are being uh, discussed. But here's something that's also happening in Asia, certainly happening in China. I don't believe that it's happening in every country in Asia, but I think it is happening in China, where China gave insurance to employers to bring your employees back, even if they get reinfected. And so one of the key things that I hope comes out of this uh, catastrophe is that there's a new form of business interruption insurance on the front end that is very similar to terrorism risk insurance, which came out of 9-11, which is very similar to flood insurance, uh, which uh, is also federally mandated. Uh, but also, if, if the feds are going to do anything now that are going to really give employers at least legal confidence, not necessarily cultural confidence, but legal confidence, boy, if they were to do what China did and give employers insurance against an employee getting reinfected, not only would it open up the workplace sooner, but it would give a little people more confidence. So again, that doesn't change the moral issues and the cultural issues that you know you should still t protect your employees to the level that you think is the best for them. But nevertheless, that's what China did to help open their economy sooner. Spencer, thank you. We want to be respectful of your time. We're at the top of the hour. We'll open it to one more question and then uh, we'll uh, adjourn. Okay. What, uh, next question. Spencer, thanks for the great insights uh, as always. Uh, talking about kind of this uh, growing and changing fluid workplace, what are your thoughts on the impacts for micro unit and co-living res as uh, uh, kind of the work from home uh, component grows as part of the workplace ecosystem? Well, I'm going to give you an unusual answer. Uh, I guess all my answers were unusual, right, Patrick? But this one, um, I'm going to go to this one. So uh, CBRE came out last year with what we call our Green Building Adoption Index, which measures sustainability, right? And I think sustainability has to be part of this conversation because the rise in sustainability is going to mirror the rise in wellness in terms of what we demand from our working arrangements and potentially, and this is where the answer is going to get unusual, Patrick, our living arrangements. So what did our green building adoption index say? Well, this is what it said. It said that the number one city in America for green buildings is, you guessed it, Chicago. I had to throw that in there. At 75% of your buildings are deemed to be green by our green building adoption, your office buildings. The number one green city in America for multifamily buildings is Denver, 7.4%. Let me repeat those numbers for a second, shall I? 75%, 7.4%. What does that mean? It means that the same employees that demand a green space when they go to the office aren't quite so picky when they go home. And because they're going to be value conscious, much more value conscious than you believe. And I'll give you one other stat that'll uh, kick around in your mind tonight. The ICSC did a study about a year ago of what motivated Gen Z buyers to buy goods at a particular store. And everybody on this call probably says, oh, you know, social sensibility, green, all these things. Guess what came in last? That stuff. You know what came in first? Value. The cost. Gen Zers are just like you and me, right? And I'm sure there's some Gen Zers on this call. But to, to your question, value will win the day. People will pay. If they could pay less, they'll be a little inconvenienced so they have a reasonable amount of wellness. And guess what? 
That's what's going to drive people back onto cruise ships too. Thank you. You're welcome. Spencer, on behalf of Cornet Chicago, we very much appreciate your time. Welcome back. Uh, we hope to have you back again to provide another update maybe next January. Great. Well, uh, thanks Everyone for having else, me. Uh, Look forward thank you, to uh, the Cornette site for further programs. Thank you, and uh, please care, follow everyone. me on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to uh, friend all of you and uh, continue the conversation. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Spencer.